This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Earthwise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. Welcome to Earthwise, I'm Lois Griffiths. For today's program, I'm honoured to once again have the opportunity to be talking with Binoy Kempmark, Senior Lecturer in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT Melbourne, Benoit writes widely in several websites, including Counterpunch and the Australian magazine Green Left Weekly. Well, welcome to Earthwise, Benoit Kempmark. It's a pleasure being with you, Lois. Well, Benoit, what with climate breakdown, the pandemic, extreme inequality, famine in some parts of the world, these very urgent, serious problems facing all humanity, wouldn't you think that at last the world would turn away from militarism but now we're hearing of a new military alliance with the weird-sounding acronym AUKUS, Australia, UK, and US. What's this all about? What? Why? What's the story behind AUKUS? Well, yes, it's a very uh, disturbingly interesting story, I suppose you might want to call it, and that uh, comes in the form of an agreement, as you say. So essentially, we're talking about a security pact where. We've got these three countries, if you like, the part of the Anglosphere, the United States, the UK, and Australia have made an agreement, which is uh, an unvarnished effort uh, to contain China. I don't think there's any secret about that fact, and even though the official announcement made by the three leaders in September made a suggestion that uh, it made no mention of China, it is very clear that terms such as, you know, uh, um, open navigation or instances such as you know, the rise of other powers is code for we need to deter uh, China in the region. And one of the centerpieces of this is a promise to, uh, which is the first time it's been done by the United States, certainly it's unusual with powers to do this, but to share, as it were, technology for nuclear propulsion for submarines. So what the United States and with Britain, the primarily the United States has promised to do essentially is to give Australia or construct for Australia or have Australians build, it's still unclear, all of that is sketchy, uh, a number of submarines that will be nuclear propelled and powered, but not have nuclear weapons. These are not apparently going to have nuclear weapons, but they will have nuclear propulsion, about eight of them. We don't know when we're going to see them. We don't know their cost. We don't know the implications beyond the fact that there's now going to be a scoping uh, committee established and study done. But uh, the, the gist of it here is greater militarization uh, and adding impetus to the arms race in the region, of course, and other powers thinking, well, why don't we get in on the act as well? So these are just some of the implications which we can talk about, which are very disturbing for the region. I'm curious to see... This combination, these three, Australia, UK, and US, it doesn't mention New Zealand, and um, probably it's just as well yes. for our, from our point of view, but doesn't that take people yes. by surprise? Uh, well, it's it, it sort of, it's it certainly, let's start with a few, um, shall we say, individuals that did take um, by surprise, and of course, that's uh, it's the French primarily, I think, in this, uh, mainly given the fact that it involved. 
as you know, scuppering a deal uh, between the French, um, largely French government-owned Naval Group, uh, with the Australian government to build diesel electric submarines uh, for these so-called attack class submarines for the Australian Navy. Now, it has to be said that that particular contract was played from the start. It risked being a white elephant of the city, as in fact it's now been confined. Uh, it's been sc- scrapped uh, in the process. You know, we're not sure, of course, how much France is going to be asking for money at this point in terms of the separation, but uh, it was an extraordinary uh, spectacle in a sense because the um, French, the French President Macron, the French Foreign Minister and the Naval Group only essentially knew about this uh, agreement with AUKUS uh, and the submarine component of it a matter of hours before it was announced. Uh, And that just goes to show the, uh, the extent of understanding that the Australian government has about diplomacy. So effectively they you know, and this is why for some months, uh, this has obviously been in track for some months. Um, it shows a repositioning of Australia, more or less an admission, certainly from the Australian perspective, that they're not interested in being uh, honest brokers in the region. They're interested in being very much on the side of the United States. And you mentioned uh, that New Zealand's not a part of it. Well, that, that is a very good thing. It's not a part of it. And then one of the reasons, of course, is that it, it is part New Zealand's uh, part of a free trade, as far as not free trade, um, a nuclear-free zone, which, of course, does not commit submarines of any type in terms of nuclear propulsion or nuclear weapons of any sort to be positioned um, in its territory and in its waters. And so that's the reason, really, why it just never figured in the equation. I'm still curious about the whole arrangement. I mean, this is focusing on China, isn't it? And the UK, for instance, is a long way from China. Yes, it's a strange thing, too. You're, you're right in, in terms of why the, the UK is there. But one of the reasons why the UK is in the agreement is because it involves sharing technology um, regarding uh, nuclear propulsion. And the reason why is that the UK itself was the recipient uh, of this technology in terms of the sharing by the, from the United States itself. This is why it's considered a very unusual thing. So bringing the UK on board seemed to be the logical thing in a sense because they also have been sharing or have been bringing or using, um, I suppose, US know-how when it comes to uh, these submarines. That's one aspect. And, of course, the other aspect of it is, is this. It fits, it ties in well with Boris uh, of global Britain and the recent mutterings uh, in Downing Street about trying to you know, revive this east of Suez notion that even though, as you've the expression, of course, the idea that the British Empire, of course, at a certain point, you know, decided not to deploy its forces east of Suez, uh, in reference, of course, uh, to its old imperial might, that it seems that modern Britain wants to be more involved in the region and the Indo-Pacific primarily, and that's uh, an aspect of the security arrangement. So mm. I'm not expecting to see much in terms of this aspect. Uh, this is primarily a U.S.-driven uh, venture with Australia essentially as the great a- aircraft carrier and then sort of Britain as a tag-along. Did this take the public by surprise? How does Scott Morrison sell this to the public? Well, how he has done it and how members of his government have done it, essentially, is, is the usual sort of thing that, 
uh, heads of state or people in office do when they have to explain what seems to be virtually unmentionable, uh, which is that, well, you know, this is all national security. It's all in Australia's interests. Well, it's very hard to see how any of this is in Australia's interests unless you are a China hawk uh, and unless you think that, uh, you know, an un you know, an open-ended commit commitment to um, U.S. operations in the region against any emerging power is a wise thing. Um, so Morrison has been essentially selling it as a case of Australia needing to be with the United States, and if you are going to be with the United States, then you, uh, you, you will put up your hand and gleefully accept these phantom submarines. And as I said, this is also this notion of selling it as a job-making venture, which, of course, is utter nonsense, given the fact that, first of all, we don't know when these submarines are going to appear. And most likely, the likely scenario is that they'll be maintained by U.S. or British crews. Um, and it's going to be, of course, money for the U.S., a defense um, industrial complex, rather than Australia, in any sense. So none of this really looks very sensible in any sense of the word. But I'm afraid to say that uh, the um, the implications of this, as I said, are dangerous because they they more or less commit uh, to the next conflict in the region um, against uh, against China. The um, I mean, this is a time when we know that a lot of young well, young people, especially, are are terribly worried about their future because of the climate breakdown, and yet all this money going into submarines, it's it. Uh, and there must be opposition in the public. There is, well, there certainly has been. But what is disturbing about it is that, um, you know, in, in the Australian context, is that the how Morrison essentially has been let off very lightly. I mean, there, there are there have been some very vocal critics. Uh, there have been uh, certainly um, just just baffled by this and and pointing out quite rightly that uh, this is a. It's a very dangerous arrangement, and this is also a very costly one, given precisely, as you were saying, matters of climate change and so on. But, but unfortunately, Australia is hardly the, uh, the sort of country to consult about anything to do with climate change, and largely because, you know, even as I'm speaking to you now, uh, there are debates and uh, internal war being waged within the Morrison government as to whether the term, you know, car being, you know carbon neutrality should be even used as a term or whether it should be an Australian platform for 2050, let alone, you know, reducing emissions by 2030. I mean, it, it is, you know, an extraordinary state of affairs where the environmental aspect has been diminished, and it's only because of external pressures, really, and also pressures from business, you know, by, you know, certain giant corporations that have decided, okay, the green idea of greening their operations is a good thing to do, that Morrison is wondering what to do come Glasgow. And we don't even know whether the Morrison, whether Morrison himself is going to be attending the Glasgow conference, climate change. So that's the extent of how that's being treated here. They'd far rather spend an unspecified number of billions on a submarine contract and a, um, that has no parameters, no details as such, rather than actually focusing on changing matters here. Now, now this nuclear aspect, of course, Australia still exports... Uranium, doesn't it? And this is a, yes, that's right. a yes, submarine exactly. with a nuclear... I don't know much about military things. With a nuclear reactor on top. It's, can this lead to more pressure to for Australia to become more nuclear active? Make better use well, of its of the, own nuclear yes. resources? 
Well, well, certainly it's one of the points that has been made that uh, will this be a spur uh, in the direction of acquiring a nuclear potential? And that's always been the reason why sharing nuclear technology of this sort is seen as a disincentive. It's done in a very, very sparingly, very rarely. It's in a, so, you know, you don't usually... Uh, that's the re- one of the reasons why it, it wasn't even proposed in the context of the French agreement. You know, the original French agreement about the attack class submarine was uh, to actually retool a French nuclear submarine design, in order, uh, but then render it a conventional one by converting it into diesel electric power. Um, but that involved a huge number of problems in of itself. Because effectively, they were, of course, defanging um, the device, its potential as a nuclear uh, submarine. But back to the original point, the fear is that once you start having these weapons, um, of course, operating, yes, you know, they might be other, they'll be using conventional weapons, but uh, there will be an insistence, and I do see that happening. There'll be pressure within the government and certain lobby groups to, that, well, why, why don't we actually? Um, go along the nuclear pathway. But of course, that would be very, um, that would breach numerous obligations and nuclear proliferation, but it will be a pressure that will be there to keep in mind. I've read that um, Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia are all against this nuclear-powered submarine because they think it could, one thing often leads to another. It could lead to nuclear weapons afterwards. Australia's never signed the treaty to ban nuclear weapons, has it? No, no, no. Australia is a member of the, the traditional grouping of the so-called uh, non-proliferation treaty, which uh, has its problems, you know, but Australia has yet to, in fact, oppose us, uh, the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. It is one of the group of countries, including, including Japan, by the way, you know, um, opposing uh, you know, their non-nuclear weapons states that nonetheless oppose the treaty to ban nuclear weapons because they are, you know, for want of a better better word, uh, you know, recipients of this you know, fictional nuclear umbrella of what's called extended deterrence from the United States. So they are, in the, if you like, in the shadow you know, of extended deterrence. You know, so they, they are you know, recipients of this largesse, of this protection this, you know, from the United States. That's why they oppose the, uh, um, the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. You're listening to Earthwise broadcasting in Christchurch on Plains FM 96.9, in Hamilton on Free FM, and in Waikanae on Coast Access Radio. Today's guest is Benoit Kempmark, Senior Lecturer at RMIT Melbourne. We're discussing AUKUS, this new military alliance between Australia, UK, and UK, sorry, and USA. Well, what, how do they feel about this in Britain? Is Boris Johnson able to sell this to the British public? Well, what, is, what Johnson has been doing is essentially bringing out all the, uh, the hawks uh, in terms of, for example, um, to, uh, you know, Mr. Tugendhat and individuals like in the Tory party, you know, the Conservatives, to essentially say that this is a chance for Britain to um, really sort of wear the standard of uh, be it rights and or be it um, as it were of British power, and even though it's very meek and you know, quite frankly, you know, of not a scale that they think they seem to have. 
but how Johnson has essentially sold it is, is the old, is old Britannic uh, patriotism, essentially, that somehow Britain needs to play a role uh, in the Indo-Pacific. It needs to return there in some form. It needs to be more aggressive there, as it were. And, uh, that's, and of course, one of the things is to target specific Chinese actions, be it China, China's territorial um, claims in the South China Sea, but also, of course, uh, saying that, um, you know, talking about the Chinese record in human rights, the Chinese crackdown in Hong Kong, um, and, of course, the treatment of the Uyghurs and so forth. So these are the sorts of selling points to, you know, in terms of convincing um, British voters that they have, as it were, they should be happy to go along with this sort of thing. But but in the main, uh, I think one has to just say that to a certain extent it looks fairly opportunistic rather than anything else. And it's just one of those things, another distraction, um, which is something Johnson is very good at. I don't think the uh, Labour Party, they just had a conference, haven't they? They, they actually opposed this agreement. Well, the Labour Party is in a funny situation uh, in, 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 in the British context because, unfortunately, you know, here Sam has been, uh, as it were, struggling to, when you think about it, uh, utterly bizarre given how uh, Johnson has mismanaged so many things regarding, be it COVID itself, you know, yes, the vaccination process has been done very well, but the initial handling of it was catastrophic. Um, but leaving that aside, uh, Labour, of course, has its... Um, classic divisions. It's got a security-minded grouping, uh, you know, centered around some of the old Blairite types, and then it's got so those uh, like the, the Jeremy Corbyn types that, of course, are against uh, these kind of ventures. And that's, so the party itself is facing its usual divisions when it comes to how best to, do, to deal with these kind of security packs and entangling engagements. The sort of spin we're getting is when they talk about um, rules-based international order. I wrote a letter to the paper saying, who's setting the rules about this rules-based international order? And they didn't print my letter. <laughs> no, well, naturally, because, the, because of course, the, the, the sad reality of it is, and uh, you'll catch them, any of these individuals who talk about the rules-based order of guard. I know that Boris Johnson has claimed that this will promote stability. Does anybody accept that? Well, it, it, it's very hard to. And, and again, we're, we're back to the old arguments of the uh, um, power plays of, for example, Europe um, prior to the outbreak of World War I in 1914. The idea being that you had these super blocks, if you like, um, countering each other's power, and there would be in some kind of immaculate equilibrium. And uh, the the way it's sold by the likes of Johnson, by the likes of uh, the Biden administration, and by the Morrison government is that the you know, by essentially having a military presence or by being more belligerent or bellicose in the region, this is putting China on notice, and therefore China will behave. So the idea then somehow this will be maintaining stability. And of course, you know, history is replete with examples where this is just total nonsense, this kind of armed uh, peace, if you like, and this kind of armed tension is bound to spill over in some kind of skirmish or some kind of accidental discharge of weaponry or whatever it might be. And uh, then you end up seeing a sequence of events that seem to be uncontrollable. And so that's the, the sad thing 
regarding the you know these kind of security packs, as it were. It's a, I hate to think that war is inevitable with China. That's what some people are, are feared. I think the CIA in the U.S. now has a whole section set up to counter China. Is it an economic fear that the Chinese are, are advancing economically into areas that have always been dominated by the West? There is a lot of that. I mean, there's no question about the uh, the concern about Chinese domination. If you just, uh, you know, in these areas of the market, if you like, that a lot of it is... Right. The military aspect is certainly one thing in terms of um, how the Pentagon is trying to drive up, of course, interest in getting more money uh, to combat uh, the rise of China. But, of course, uh, when you start looking at the figures, uh, China's uh, expenditure, and, it's, and there's always a statistic that's uh, trotted out, especially by the British, and that is to say that they can, the Chinese um, military is effectively building... Uh, the equivalent of the British Navy every year. Um, but what is forgotten is that the budget remains, you know, minuscule, um, or certainly a lot smaller relative to what the U.S. expends in weapons and what the U.S. expends in terms of its uh, enormous uh, outlay of uh, lethal uh, weaponry and its bases, uh, you know, all across the globe. So one has to also maintain perspective there. So. But in terms of the uh, economic threat as perceived from China, it's very, it's, it's, it's very genuine. I know that um, uh, Anthony Blinken's time as Secretary of State has often been spent making speeches about the need of the United States to catch up to and, and surpass China in a range of areas, including, for example, uh, the Green Revolution or including in areas such as solar panels, in which China has, is very much dominant in production. So in each one of these areas, there's a fear that China is simply still in a march, um, and there needs to be some kind of return of U.S. primacy in them. So primarily in this area, it's economic, but uh, there is a strong military voice and uh, a fear of Chinese power from, as you say, the intelligence community, the establishment of a new research group, but just with the pure basis of, of looking at China uh, in the Central Intelligence Agency, and then you also have, of course, the uh, the ongoing um, talk and fear uh, within the Defense Department, the Pentagon, about uh, Chinese uh, potency, especially in the region. Yeah. I'm going to interrupt this because I don't want it to finish without bringing up a topic that's very close to my heart. I've met Julian Assange's father in Melbourne, actually. It's oh, yeah. the, um, the hearings coming up soon in the UK, isn't it, to decide whether yeah. Julian Assange will be extradited to the US. And yes. The silence so, so here disturbs me. Our, our media says nothing about that poor man. What about the feeling in Australia? Well, in Australia, this again, it's it's one of those sad things because you cannot you view the Assange case without appreciating the the power dynamics at play between the various individuals. So, for example, uh, Morrison says almost nothing about it to so the Prime Minister and, and the foremost cabinet members. Uh, would rather prefer not to mention Assange at all. So in that particular context, uh, there's simply nothing discussed. However, when his case does come up, there are a, certain, a number of parliamentarians, uh, individuals such as the independent Andrew Wilkie um, and also the, the Nationals uh, um, member for the seat of Dawson, which is in North Queensland, in a rural seat in North Queensland, 
uh, who, George Christensen, who's very much um, a fan, and they, they constitute a cross-parliamentary committee uh, that's interested to bring Julian home, which is their message. So they are, they're very much there trying to um, drum up interest in the matter, but unfortunately the, the channels of power, if you like, are looking the other way because they... You know, it, it is an incredibly disconcerting case on numerous levels, you know, and that's deeply disturbing in its implications. But yes, come uh, latter part of this month, uh, the U.S. is going to be advancing its appeal against the extradition decision, uh, which was, or the rather the decision against extradition, if you like, that was made by Judge uh, Vanessa Bereitza, um in January this year, and uh, the. We await to see whether they're going to pull it off, and I certainly hope they do not, But uh, the, because the arguments are very narrow, but they are nonetheless quite serious. We, we have a group in, in Christchurch, sorry, sorry, in New Zealand, um, started in Northland, trying to raise uh, awareness among the public about this issue to pressure our, our own government to take a stand and even to offer asylum not just to Julian Assange, but to his fiance, and, and he has two children as well. And okay. I wish New Zealand. We've got a certain manner after the. I think after the reaction against the, um, after the reaction to the mosque attack in Christchurch, that gives um, New Zealand a, a very positive flavour, feeling around the world. And I, I think I wish New Zealand would offer asylum to Julian Assange. Yes. Uh, well, well, that that will be. They'll be fabulous, but I suppose one of the, the issues there is that Assange is, is one of those characters who's not necessarily, um, uh, you know, the flavor um, of even a government, for example, such as that of New Zealand, and New Zealand does, you know, have, you know, certainly a chance to, to make that sort of offer. But you have to also remember when you consider, for example, countries such as, and here I put New Zealand and Australia together, the uh, uh, UK and the United States they are part of the because the Five Eyes Alliance they share intelligence, they share information they, they have a cooperative relationship on security and intelligence matters that if you like is, is openly challenged by um, the functioning of an organization such as WikiLeaks and by yes. the activities of, of someone like Assange and so I just don't see that happening in a genuine sense, and that's why it's left to, um, you know, countries in Latin America, or it's left to a country like, say, Iceland, or <laughs> these countries. Oh, dear I do appreciate that the time you take to talk to us. I think there are a lot of people in our situation who want to know about what's going on in the world, but they don't know where to turn for information. It's not that easy. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure being with you, Lois, at any time, and always happy to shed some light in some of these dark spaces, as it were. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Thank you. Anytime, anytime. So from us at Earthwise, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>